This episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast, is brought to you in partnership with Thermo Fisher Scientific. Thermo Fisher's cell therapy processing instruments are designed to help customers transition from process development to commercial manufacturing, utilized as standalone devices or integrated as part of a closed modular process. Thermo Fisher Scientific recommends Gibco CTS DynaSelect Magnetic Separation System, which is a next-gen cell isolation and activation instrument. Gibco CTS Xenon Electroporation System allows customers full control to optimize for a variety of cell types and payloads. And Gibco CTS Rotea Counterflow Centrifugation System is a closed cell processing system supporting a broad range of protocols for cell separation, washing, and concentration. Customers can rely on and streamline their drug development process with Applied Biosystems Qualtrac qPCR and dPCR quality control tools for robust and reliable genetic analysis across various phases of drug development, supported by relevant, compliant documentation. listeners and welcome to this episode of Cell and Gene the Podcast. I'm your host Erin Harris and my guest for this episode is Rachel Harwitz, PhD, CEO at Caribou Biosciences. We're going to talk all about genome editing as well as AlloCART-T and CART-NK, but before we do, uh, Rachel, welcome to Cell and Gene the Podcast. Thank you for Thanks being so here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. All right, so let's start off by please briefly explain one the evolution of Caribou Biosciences its mission, and then also, you know, your role as CEO and, and more of what your near-term goals are for the company. Yeah, great questions. Thank you. So Caribou is about to celebrate its 11th birthday. Caribou was spun out of Jennifer Doudna's lab at UC Berkeley. And really in the early days, Caribou was a very different company from who it is today. Today, we're a pretty traditional drug development organization with multiple programs in the clinic and another one headed there soon. But in the early days, we really had an incredibly broad appetite for all the things we thought CRISPR genome editing could and should do. And fundamentally, my founding team and I felt that CRISPR genome editing should transform any market with bio-based products. Now, that's a huge universe, right? That's everything from drug development and basic research to agriculture, industrial biotechnology, and a multitude of other applications. Pretty hard for one tiny company to be and do all of those things at once. And so our way of initially achieving that was to be a pure platform technology company. We explicitly did not develop our own products. And instead we partnered with companies across these different areas. We had the chance to work with, for example, Novartis for high throughput target identification and validation with DuPont who had interests in corn engineering and industrial microbe engineering and a wide variety of other companies as well. Now, I think most importantly, all of those interactions and collaborations gave us a front row seat to many companies who are already investing in genome editing to solve problems and the chance to ask them, what's the bottleneck? What can you not do that you want to be able to do with this kind of technology? And what we heard back from everyone had to do with specificity, meaning when you edit a genome, you actually edit the site you intend to and avoid off-target consequences elsewhere turns out pretty easy to say, not so easy to do. And that really focused a lot of our research here at Caribou for years. Ultimately, that work 
led to a few of my colleagues inventing our own next generation CRISPR technology. We call it the Chardonnay technology, and it's far more specific than first generation CRISPR-Cas9. With that in hand, we thought really hard about what Caribou should do with this you know, fantastic version of CRISPR and felt it was appropriate to really double down and take this technology and try to really uniquely solve problems for patients. And so today, uh, we're a, a more traditional drug development organization. Our mission is to develop innovative, transformative therapies for patients with devastating diseases through novel genome editing. So as I think about my role as the CEO today, you know, what I do every day has changed a lot over the past 11 years, but fundamentally my role is to help set strategy, hire a great team and raise enough money for them to do their work and, and get out of the way so they can do it. You know, right now that work is a lot of continued clinical execution. I'm sure we'll have the, the chance to talk about it today. We have two programs in the clinic. Uh, they're both allogeneic CAR-Ts. Uh, excited by the uh, data that we shared recently on our lead program. And I think that creates a lot of urgency internally as we figure out how to move these programs forward expeditiously. Great. Thank you. That was a really uh, thoughtful explanation of Caribou and your role with the company. Um, and we'll definitely be getting into certainly the trials as well as uh, Chardonnay, which you mentioned earlier. Um, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about genome editing um, broadly. So it's evolved, I would say, really specifically in the past five years or so. Um, and from your professional perspective, what I would love to hear from you is, you know, what would you say are the, the real true benefits of genome editing? And what would you say is its potential in the next handful of years for the cell and gene therapy sector? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I will focus my answer specifically in the context of human therapeutic product development. Um, and so I, I think as you think about the ever expanding toolbox, it has to be looked at through the lens of what can this do for patients? What are the problems we can solve for patients that we couldn't prior to the invention of this new technology or the evolution of this new capability? So as I think about the broadening toolbox of CRISPR or non-CRISPR approaches for genome editing, the only reaction can be pure excitement for patients as we think about all kinds of enhanced capabilities. Maybe to break it down very simply, I think it largely falls into two categories. One would be ex vivo approaches of using genome editing to develop cellular therapies. And the other would be in vivo, directly delivering one of these reagents into a target organ to try to correct a genetic disease. In the cell therapy world, which is where Caribou plays today, I think genome editing plays a crucial role, not only in facilitating an off-the-shelf strategy for something like a CAR-T, where of course genome editing helps ensure that we don't cause graft-versus-host disease, but it also really unlocks the broader potential of these kinds of cell therapies by allowing really quite sophisticated multiplex genome editing to do what we call armoring, really enhancing the activity of the cells so that they have better anti-tumor activity or, or other better capabilities. You could imagine applying this to a wide variety of areas. Uh, for example, some of the work that we're doing is to develop CAR-NKs. And we do all of that by editing induced pluripotent stem cells and then turning those edited iPSCs into CAR-NKs. Well, that's the tip of the iceberg, right? You could imagine editing iPSCs 
uh, and turning them into all different kinds of cell therapies. And so I, I think genome editing really unlocks a breadth of potential in the cell therapy world. Um, switching then to the other side in vivo, genome editing is really critical for the ability to think about directly addressing the genetic cause of a multitude of diseases. Now, success relies on combining genome editing with an appropriate delivery technology. And so making sure you get it to the organ you want to and not to all, all the organs you don't want to. So as I, as I step back, Erin, and, and think about your last question, you know, really in the next few years, I hope that fundamentally genome editing underpins what I'll call the third leg of the stool in the world of drug development. Today, we very clearly have a whole class of medicines that fall in the small molecule bucket, a whole class of medicines that fall in the monoclonal antibody or, or recombinant protein bucket. I hope in the not too distant future, there's really a meaningful third leg to that stool of genomic medicines where genome editing plays a really key role. Yeah, sure. And I think, uh, I think we're certainly headed that way for certain. Um, I want to talk more specifically now about Caribou's Chardonnay, which we talked about earlier, um, it's your genome editing technology. So talk us through, what is it and how does it dis differ, excuse me, from CRISPR-Cas9? Great question. Chardonnay is our next generation CRISPR technology, and it is far more specific than first generation CRISPR-Cas9. What we've actually done is invent new guides. As I'm sure you're aware, typically CRISPR enzymes are targeted by all RNA molecules, usually called guide RNAs, to the desired site in the genome. What our team did is instead develop hybrid guides, guides that are part DNA, part RNA. And it turns out the inclusion of DNA dramatically improves the specificity of genome editing. So we initially called these guides CRISPR hybrid RNA DNA. That's a mouthful that no one wants to say twice. So we wrote that out as a little acronym, CHRDNA, which we pronounce Chardonnay. Um, and that's the technology that underpins our therapeutic pipeline today. We can utilize these guides with multiple different CRISPR enzymes. So our lead program, uh, which we call CB10, it's an off-the-shelf CAR-T for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. We manufacture that program using Cas9 combined with Chardonnay guides. And then all the other programs we're working on today, we actually use the Cas12A enzyme instead. And that's because we're able to take advantage of the fact that Cas12a is excellent at mediating not only gene deletions, but also gene insertions. And both of those functionalities are really critical as we continue to build out our cell therapy platform. Good. Okay, thanks. Um, now, just recently, uh, the, earlier this month, actually, uh, you did a Q&A with me for a publication on Cell and Gene, and I highly advise our listeners to go uh, look it up because there's a really great deal of valuable information that Rachel provided in that article. Um, but in that article, you stated, okay, so we believe the future of cell therapy is off the shelf to deliver the promise of cell therapies to a broader patient population. And we know Caribou Biosciences develops allogeneic CAR-T for hematologic malignancies and CAR-NK cell therapies for solid tumors, like we talked about a little bit earlier. So I really wanna break that down a little bit more. Um, talk us through how Caribou is working uh, to advance off the shelf to deliver on that promise of cell therapies. And then I, I would love to hear about the status of your clinical trials. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with why we believe off the shelf has to be the future. 
And then I'll drill in on how we use our genome editing to accomplish some of those goals. So as I look at the autologous CAR-Ts, the patient-specific CAR-Ts for which there are multiple approved products today, they demonstrate the incredible power of the immune system as an anti-cancer agent. And it is so exciting to me to know that there are so many people who are alive and well today because of the incredible activity of CAR-Ts that they have received. And yet, as I step back and I look at the tremendous body of work that's been done, these are end of one therapies, right? Each and every patient needs their own bespoke manufacturing run. Um, it's starting with their own T cells. So some patients are never even eligible in the first place because they don't have sufficiently healthy material or other uh, caveats and concerns um, through to the time associated with getting in a queue, undergoing leukophoresis, probably undergoing bridging therapy to stay healthy enough to receive the product, waiting for the product to be manufactured and then getting it. And so to our minds, this is an obvious opportunity to take the wins, which is the understanding of how powerful a CAR-T can be and really bring that to the next level and make it off the shelf. Um, that way we're manufacturing based on healthy donor T-cells instead of the patient's own T-cells. And yet we have to immediately acknowledge the fact that now these are foreign cells, they're foreign to the patient's immune system, and they're going to be rapidly rejected as a result. And so we believe we have to use our genome editing in one or a multitude of ways to really enhance the activity of these cells so that we can capture sufficient anti-tumor activity to really uh, deliver the right kind of anti-cancer approach for these patients. So we think there are a few different ways to go about this. Our lead program, CB10, which as I mentioned, is in an ongoing phase one trial for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, utilizes the knockout of PD-1. Uh, PD-1 will obviously be quite familiar to this audience. What we've done is really genetically take the breaks off the CAR T cells themselves. And our goal is to prevent premature CAR T exhaustion. We know these cells are going to be rejected fairly rapidly. Uh, the PK data that we've shared to date demonstrates that within about a month of dosing, the cells are largely undetectable in the peripheral blood. And so the goal is during that window of time while they're present to ensure that they pack as much of an anti-tumor punch as possible. In fact, preclinically, where obviously we can evaluate a number of different flavors of CAR-Ts fairly readily, we could see that a CAR-T that looks like CB10, except it still expresses PD-1, results in far worse outcomes, much uh, faster recurrence of tumor and faster death as a result of tumor in mice compared to CB10 with that PD-1 knockout. And so we came into this clinical trial a few years ago, hypothesizing that the PD-1 knockout could lead to a better therapeutic index than other CD19 targeted CAR-Ts. I believe that's what we're seeing in the clinic. So recently we shared all of the dose escalation data. So this was 16 patients evaluated across three different dose levels. One of the things that I thought was so remarkable is uh, the fraction of patients in the first cohort who responded. In fact, the fraction who had complete responses were 100%. And that's obviously quite unusual in an early phase one trial for a new cell therapy. You expect that low starting dose to be sub-therapeutic. And yet it appears that the PD-1 knockout is really enhancing the anti-tumor activity. Uh, zooming out as we look across that data set, 44% of those patients achieved a complete response that lasted for at least six months, if not longer. 
which is incredibly exciting to see. And is I think a key benchmark as we compare and contrast against the autologous CAR-Ts in an equivalent patient population, uh, we've seen the auto CAR-Ts in publications, admittedly in a larger patient population, maybe 100 to 200 patients, lead about 30 to 35% of patients to achieve a CR at six months or greater. So we think these data compare quite favorably and demonstrate that an allogeneic CAR-T can meaningfully rival the responses of an auto CAR-T. But the PD-1 knockout isn't the only way we think about how to drive anti-tumor activity. CB11, which is our second program, an off-the-shelf anti-BCMA CAR-T for multiple myeloma, also in an ongoing phase one trial, we instead here do what we call immune cloaking. So we're actually trying to manipulate HLA class one presentation on the surface of the CAR T cell to slow down how the patient's immune system can recognize it and reject it. Basically our goal is to buy additional time for the CAR T's to circulate and therefore additional anti-tumor activity. So this is a a multi-edit strategy, one edit uh, by disrupting a protein called beta two microglobulin gets rid of all endogenous HLA class one presentation. And then a second edit inserts a new transgene into the T cell genome that uh, fuses together beta 2M with HLA-E and ensures that our CAR T cells are decorated on their surface only with HLA-E and none of the other major or minor class one antigens. And the goal here is to prevent both the patient's T cells and the patient's natural killer cells from rapidly rejecting the therapy. Uh, Preclinically, we can see that these CAR T cells are very nicely protected from cytotoxicity from both allo T cells as well as other donor-derived natural killer cells. So we're excited to see how this plays out in the clinic. Um, And then I'll just quickly highlight, you don't have to do these separately necessarily. They could be additive. And in fact, CB12, which is our third program, an allogeneic CAR T for AML on track for an IND filing in the second half of this year, benefits from both of these together, both the PD-1 knockout and the immune cloaking strategy together. That's incredible. Such amazing work being done. And I'm hoping that, uh, you know, later this year, or perhaps even early next, we can reconvene to uh, talk about how that particular trial has progressed and deliver the data then. That would be great. That would be great. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about what does the rest of 2023 and then 2024, or basically the foreseeable future, uh, look like for caribou science, biosciences? Excuse me. Yeah, con- continued execution. So for the remainder of this year, we've got a, a few key milestones. Uh, CB10, as we discussed, we just disclosed the dose escalation data. Uh, our next data update, which will be our first look at dose expansion data, will come in the first half of next year. But between now and then, we intend to approach the FDA to engage in a discussion on a potential pivotal path for this program. Um, This program benefits from RMAT, which gives us the chance to engage uh, more proactively and more regularly with the FDA. And I'll highlight that already those engagements have helped us really accelerate the development of CB10. All of our dose escalation work was done in third line or later patients, as you might expect for this kind of trial. And because of the very promising initial data, we got excited about the potential to jump straight into second line patients. And as we think about the broader competitive landscape, both the unmet medical need and the evolving commercial landscape, we know the opportunity as you know, really 
CAR-Ts in the auto setting have blazed the path is moving into the second line. And so our objective is to get there as fast as possible. And the FDA actually greenlit our ability to do all of our dose expansion work today in second line patients. So right now we are actively enrolling second line large B-cell lymphoma patients in our dose expansion. Uh, We're evaluating two different doses with the goal of then using all of those data to narrow our focus to one as the recommended phase two dose. So later this year, we'd like to approach the FDA uh, to engage in a discussion about a potential pivotal path directly into the second line. And I hope by the end of this year, we'll be in a position to share some of that feedback. Now, thinking about CB11, uh, we dosed our first patient in what we call the camouflage trial uh, towards the end of Q1 this year. We haven't yet guided to the exact timeline for the first data update. And that's simply because it will be data-driven as we continue to collect data We want to be in a place where we feel like we understand enough, not only about safety, but also initial activity to feel that we have a a sufficiently meaty data set to find the right venue to to share that information publicly. And then CB12, uh, we are on track for an IND submission by the end of this year. So as I pick up my head and and look forward, Erin, quite a lot of exciting work as we think about these three programs in the clinic. Uh, enrolling patients and really understanding uh, the safety and the activity of these programs. Okay, great. Well, I mean, that settles it. You certainly have to come back in this, perhaps the start of next year to update us on how well those three programs are doing. That's fantastic. I'd love that. Thank you. Good. Um, all right. So we've reached the the formal end of our discussion here. Um, and as Selenjean, uh, the podcast listeners may know um, at the end of every episode, I like to talk to my guests about who they are when they're not um, developing life-saving therapies. So um, my question for you is, and you're in the Berkeley area, right? The Bay Area, that's right. So what are some of your favorite summertime activities to do in the Bay Area? Being outdoors. I absolutely love that the weather in the Bay Area facilitates being outdoors 24-7 if you want. Um, It's a wonderful place to get to go hiking or running. Um, Personally, I really love long distance running. And so it's a great opportunity for me, whether it's on the road or on trails to get to know new parts of the Bay Area. Um, And now these days I throw my daughter, who's about to be 11 months old, into the jogging stroller and, and she comes exploring with me and it's a ton of fun. Oh, that's great. And a, and a great way to introduce all of those great outdoor activities to your daughter. Uh, and we wish her a happy first birthday. It looks like it's coming up. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. All right, listeners, that's it for this episode featuring Caribou Biosciences, Rachel Thorowitz. Thanks, Rachel, so much for your time and the incredible insight you shared with us today. This was great. Thank you, Erin. Really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. And listeners, visit us at selengine.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And we'll talk to you soon.